Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we often continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Thanks for tuning in today, everyone. We're going to be talking about Shmini. It's a portion about prayer and sacrifice. We are in Leviticus, after all. And it also tells the tragic story of the death of Nadav and Avihu, who are the sons of Aaron. I'm going to be talking today with Alden Salavi, who is a liturgist. He's a composer of creative prayer. So he'll have a unique angle on this parsha and what happens in it. Alden Salavi, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thanks for having me. So you are a liturgist and an author and a poet. You've created a great deal of creative and poetic liturgy and prayer. So I imagine we're going to be talking about prayer over the next little while. Yeah. As most of our listeners know, we're going to spend the first little while talking about the Torah portion. And then we'll see where our conversation goes. And we'll talk about you and your work and the work of, of creating liturgy. So this week we're reading from Parshat Shmini, as you know, and Shmini, we're, we're really in the heart of Leviticus here. Last week we read about the consecration of the priests, which is a process of seven days. The priests are anointed and consecrated, and then they wait seven days. And then the Torah tells us that on the eighth day, which of course is the meaning of the word Shmini, the formal worship in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, begins. So we read about the first sacrifices that Aaron and the other priests perform. And then we read this really distressing incident, which is what you told me you wanted to talk about today. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to read the very end of Leviticus chapter 9, and then the very beginning of chapter 10, and then I'll turn it over to you, and we'll talk about what on earth is going on here. Uh, So at the very end of Leviticus chapter 9, Aaron has made a sacrifice, and it says, Ish milfanei Adonai, fire came forth from before the eternal, and it consumed the burnt offering and all the fat parts on the altar, and all the people saw and shouted and fell on their faces. And this is supposed to be an indication that God has accepted the sacrifice. Then, here's what happens at the beginning of chapter 10. It says, Now Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, each took his fire pan, put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they offered before the eternal alien fire, which God had not enjoined upon them. Then fire came forth from the eternal and consumed them, and they died at the instance of the Lord. So the first time we have a fire, it's because God has accepted a sacrifice. The second time we have a fire, it's because these priests who did something wrong are being consumed by the fire. So what do you think is going on here? Tell me what this raises up for you. This raises up the idea of what is, in a sense, appropriate liturgical and spiritual practice. Let's remember that this may be the longest run-up to a catastrophe that we have in all of Torah. Seven parshiot. We have five parshiot in Shemot in Exodus that tell us about the building of the tabernacle. And then we have these 
two parshiot that teach us in Vaikra and Sav about the, the sacrifices and how to consecrate the priests. And then we have these three pasukim, these three verses in a row, each with fire, God's fire, and then Nadav and Abihu's fire, and then God's fire again. Mm -hmm. I want to suggest that this moment was foreshadowed in Tzav, maybe even in Vayikra, with two scribal anomalies. That in Tzav, this word mokda has a memzeira, a small mem. If we were to open the Torah, we would actually see that the letter mem is written smaller than the rest of the word, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And in many of our Torah commentaries, the, the typeface is reduced as well to, to let us know that that's happening. Uh, the Kotzker, Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, says that this small mem, and remember the gematria of mem is 40, so it might indicate 40 years in the wilderness, yeah. might indicate our failure to be humble, uh, before God with the, with the golden calf. What the Kotzker says is because this, this line talks about the hearth on the altar, that our fires, our internal spiritual fires need not be visible to others. We have to keep them burning, but keep them burning uh, privately. And in fact, the scribal anomaly in the previous parasha, a small aleph at the beginning of Vayikra, the Balaturim says that that is about Moses's humility. So there's something about approaching God and approaching fire and approaching the altar that requires humility. It's interesting because, of course, the Torah doesn't tell us what Nadab and Abihu did wrong. It just says that they offered esh zarah, they offered strange fire. And the commentators have all kinds of theories. Maybe they were drunk because the next thing that happens is that priests are commanded not to drink alcohol. Maybe they perform some aspect of the ritual incorrectly, or maybe, as you're suggesting, their sin, their, their wrong was something regarding not being humble enough. So the, these, these answers are, are amazing. Like, one is they entered the Holy of Holies. One explanation is they weren't wearing the requisite uh, Levitical, you know, uh, spiritual clothing. Uh, they took fire from the kitchen and not the altar. They didn't consult with Moshe or Aaron. They didn't consult with each other and so on and so forth. What I want to look at is the order of these three verses. First, God's presence appears. The fire consumes the sacrifice. It is accepted. And the people, this is the part I think that's overlooked, that's critical, is they uh, fall on their faces in awe, in praise, perhaps in, in rapture. The moment itself was shalem. It was a whole. It was spiritually complete. What happens next is Adav and Avihu take the spotlight away, if you will, from this rapture and puts, puts it on themselves. Hmm. They offer this strange fire, which I'm not going to guess what that actually means, but they offer something that I would say as a as a, a Jew in the pew who loves to pray as well as a liturgist, they offered something that actually took away from a perfect spiritual moment. And in that regard, I would say they they forfeited their role 
as spiritual leaders because they failed to understand the moment and they actually diminished a moment of integrity with God by shifting the practice, by shifting the ritual. So they made it about themselves rather than making it about the community they were leading or making it about worship of God. They, they made it about themselves and in the process, they diminished the, the relationship. They diminished the connection between the people and God. I think from a modern Shaliyah Sibor prayer leader perspective, there are all kinds of lessons here. One is the rabbis and cantors that, that lead our congregations need to have a sense of what's going on. They need to understand and be in relationship with their communities and understand the moment. Sometimes they need to lead, sometimes they need to sit back and let the moment evolve. They need to offer uh, that which brings wholeness to the community. Humility is needed before the fires of God, but I think this, this incident also tells us that sensitivity and wisdom are needed before God. What I see in the opening of this three-line uh, story is there's actually spontaneous prayer. It's not spontaneous prayer that's the issue. Not the spontaneous prayer of Nadav and Abihu. Not the spontaneous prayer of the people who fell on their faces in awe of God. Mm -hmm. But it's the way it's done. It's how it's done. It's with the intention uh, and with the, the understanding. That's a beautiful message to come out of this Parsha, that prayer leaders are responsible not only for praying to God, but also to be in the moment with their communities, to create a sense of shlemut, of wholeness, and to organically work with those with whom they pray in order to approach God together. I want to just pause with that message for a short break and invite our listeners to come back and join us as we continue this conversation. We'll have more to say about the Parsha, and then we'll talk more about prayer and liturgy and the work that you do. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. All right, welcome back. We've been talking about this incident in Shmini where Nadav and Abihu are consumed by fire from God after offering strange fire. Let's continue with the Parsha a little bit because I know that you had another point to make about it. I think there's a, another message here as well. And that is that divine encounter is dangerous. There's a difference between experiencing the divine and seeking divine experience. Tell me what the difference is. So many of us have had the experience in prayer or perhaps in nature, maybe witnessing a death or witnessing a birth of being filled with Shekhinah, being filled with an understanding of God's presence. That's an offering from God. That's the arrival of holiness, if you will. Seeking God in most faith traditions and, and 
many mythologies is a dangerous endeavor. It involves trials and doorways and secret rooms and traps and and water, floods and fires and so on. It is, an, an, even in our own mystical experience, seeking God is a, a dangerous endeavor. Uh, that desire to be as close to God as possible can leave somebody bereft. I, I actually, if I may, I have a piece which addresses that particular uh, idea, uh, really from my own experience. So I have a, a three pieces, actually. I'll read one of them in this Precious Life, my latest book, about this idea of, of seeking divine experience and feeling left unanswered. Hmm. feeling that I've made myself available. I've said perhaps he need to God, here I am, use me for good purpose or teach me something and feeling empty and vacant. And so this is a, uh, a piece called A Heart That Hears. I cannot hear your voice with my ears. I cannot touch your glory with my hands. Only my heart can know your justice and mercy, your law and command, the deafening blast of your shofar and the hushed whispers within. Listen, dear sisters, dear brothers, do not be quick to pray to hear from the center of your being, to perceive from the inside out. When your heart beats with the music of the ages, you will dance in the heavens. But when silence empties your grieving heart, you will lie vacant and hollow before the tent of God. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's interesting to think about a prayer that is about not being heard by God. It's almost the opposite of what I would think prayer is. Absolutely. And I, actually, I, I believe that the great promise of Jewish prayer is found in our prayer, uh, Shomea Tefillah, that ends, you know, Baruch Atah Hashem Shomea Tefillah, blessed are you, God, who hears prayer. The great promise of Jewish prayer is not, I'm going to get an answer, not that things will work out, not that God will you know, be subservient to my will, but that God, the divine Shekhinah, will witness my life, will witness mm. our lives with love. That is the great Jewish promise in prayer. I believe it in my heart. And I also understand from my own experience that, that, that seeking it, forcing, uh, attempting to force the divine presence is still risky business. Mm -hmm. If I can make another connection, you said something that surprised me. I've often thought of the Nadav and Avihu story as being about praying correctly, which is to say, there was a prescribed manner in which the priests were supposed to go about this. And in fact, the Torah is very specific about what they did with the sacrifices, how they offered the fire, and that Nadav and Avihu just didn't do it right. They did it wrong in some way. It doesn't tell us exactly what they did wrong, but that they did it wrong. You're offering a different perspective, which is that it wasn't necessarily about they're taking liberties with the ritual, but rather about something else, something about their attitude, which is, of course, interesting because as liberal Jews, we like to take liberties with the ritual. In fact, that's pretty much what you do for a living, right, is take liberties with ritual. It's a, it's a profound question, actually. Um, I create new 
prayer and I create midrashim on Torah with poetry. It is absolutely a doorway to other things. I would say my vehicle, my work is enlivened, empowered by my writing. I love it and I love being published by CCAR Press and I love, you know, being, being, you know, I get emails from rabbis saying, hey, we need a prayer about XYZ. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And that's not my mission. Hmm. My mission is really twofold. My mission is about inspiring other people to pray in their own voice. I say, put me out of business. God is interested in hearing from you. And if my words are of service, use them. That's that's wonderful. My, the other aspect of my mission is to inspire people back to the Siddur, to, uh, to our classic uh, prayer book. There's so much rich, richness and so much beauty and so much history and love and, and understanding that as, as part of the teaching I do, I spend a lot of time talking about Siddur. So the writing, of course, is is how I'm known, and it's it's such a joy. I I wrote a new piece this morning. In fact, I'm very blessed to to be brought in as a liturgist in residence, and and be you know have my work used in congregations uh, often on Shabbat. And what I want for people is that they pray in their own voices and that they create their own personal relationship with Sidur. Your website has this really beautiful opening in your bio where it says that you spread joy and excitement for prayer. So I want to ask you more about that. You know, what does it mean and how do you go about spreading joy and excitement? So I think the way to spread joy and excitement is to be joyful and excited. You know, it's, it, it is a, um, a resonance sort of thing. Um, we're, we are to a certain degree human tuning forks. And, uh, and our souls are certainly spiritual tuning forks. So if I can show up and, and say, the great promise of Jewish prayer is that God is going to witness our lives. You know, boing, you know, I hit the tuning fork and other people start resonating. Similarly, you know, I think that's how we learn to pray. We learn to pray by being around other people who are praying with, you know, the depths of their heart and the depths of, of their souls. And, and that's why, in some respects, the, the role of a pulpit rabbi and cantor is so important, pulpit spiritual leader, because that resonance that they create is going to teach other people how to pray, how to be in relationship. I, I see that as my role as well as a congregational rabbi. It is about making prayer accessible, helping make prayer meaningful, opening up the words of prayer to people. And sometimes that's done through music. Sometimes it's done as you do it through creative liturgy. But I think that the words of the prayer book are very often closed to us because they're in a foreign language that many of us don't understand because they're quite old. And so because they are because they were written by previous generations, they are both meaningful to us as the things that our ancestors said, but also they come out of a world that isn't our world. So then I think that the power of creative liturgy is to open up and to make prayer accessible to, as you said before, Jews in the pews. Yeah, I think that's spot on. The thing I say about Sidur is that it is not a book. It is a set of books that live in time and space. It, it, it cuts across cultures from, 
from all the various forms of Nusach, uh, Mizrahi and Sephardi, the differences between the German Nusach and the Italian Nusach. It exists across time. It's a historical document. There's so much beauty that can be learned and we need to refresh it in each generation, for each generation, absolutely. And that's actually always been the case. We have this idea that the prayer book is the way it's always been. But in fact, if you read the prayer book, what you find is a veritable goldmine of generations upon generations of creative poetic liturgy that our people have been creating for thousands of years. Absolutely. So I wonder if you'll share another piece with us. And then I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your process. How do you go about creating a liturgical piece. Sure, I would I would love that. This is called The Largest Prayer. It's also from This Precious Life. How small is the largest prayer? A breath, a word, a whisper. How immense is the deepest yearning? A word, a universe, an eternity. Oh my soul, oh my longing, oh my heart, oh my being. How dear is this glorious life? How precious are your beautiful spirits. God spoke, the world burst forth. When you spoke, my life resounded, love and joy, hope and passion, wisdom and gratitude, mystery and adventure. How small is the largest prayer? A blink, a heartbeat, and forever. Amen. Can I can I tell you what that brought up for me when I heard it? Please. So, first of all, the, the language of whisper reminded me of the passage in the Tanakh where it says that God appears in the still small voice, that God can be found not always in the big things, but sometimes in, in the whispers, and that a prayer can be a breath or a word or a whisper. Speaking of speaking, you actually quote liturgy in the middle of your liturgy here. There's a sentence where you write, God spoke, the world burst forth, which is almost a quotation of the Baruch Shamar blessing, where it says, Baruch Shamar v'haya ha'olam, God spoke and the world came into being. And then you close with this idea of a prayer as being a blink, a heartbeat, and forever. And so I thought about the idea that in Judaism, God is supposed to be both transcendent and imminent. God is big and outside the world, and in many ways, the source of the world. And God is also right here inside of me, in my own breath and that that foreverness that transcendence of god is kind of balanced by the notion that god is in my own heart in my own blinking and can be found inside me so i I really found in your in your prayer here a notion of god as being both outside of me and inside of me and that i can i can say words and breathe breaths that will bring me into contact in god in all those ways that's lovely Thank you for sharing that. I think that is, in a sense, one of the great debates of understanding relationship with God. Is God imminent? Is God transcendent? And, And we actually reenact that debate between the angels when we say the Kedusha, uh, in, in our prayer. Uh, when, you know, we're, we're saying, holy, holy, holy is God the whole world is full of God's glory. And then we say, well, wait, blessed is God from God's place. Um, so transcendence, imminence, transcendence, imminence. It's that great debate and that great struggle. 
when I'm uh, when I'm not feeling God, perhaps that's a moment when God is transcendent. So when you go to create a piece of liturgy, what does that look like? So I I write in the morning. Uh, it is an typically an outgrowth of my morning prayer and meditation practice. I I get up. I, I do some classically Jewish things. I I say Modani, the prayer for thankfulness for waking up. I wash my hands. I say you know a couple other prayers, um, thanking God for my body, thanking God for my soul, and I I typically get back in bed. Let's not share that too broadly. I, we I call it Share Shana, you know, the, the gates of sleep. But yeah, I'm but familiar with that, that with that practice. That's a but but I I sit up, you know, I put on prayer gear. I uh, I read from inspirational readers. I, I do this in this order. I read from inspirational readers. I meditate. I pray from the Siddur. I pray my own prayers. I journal. And then typically uh, at that point, I'm spiritually aligned to write something. So I'm, I'm attempting in a sense to extend sort of that liminal time between uh, sleep and waking up, sort of staying in a in a spiritual state or a psychological state that is, you know, more accessible to the, those creative aspects of being. It, it sounds to me like writing prayer for you is an extension of praying, that it comes organically out of your own prayer and ritual process in the morning. It does for the most part. Um, and and that has been a source of of satisfaction and comfort for me to have this 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 practice. There are times when uh, I force the moment. Those are typically times when I'm doing what I call rapid response prayer. Something has happened and. I believe a, a prayer response is necessary from an anti-Semitic attack to the wildfires in California, tornadoes, gun violence, the fire that, that consumed Notre Dame. I've done all sorts of what I, as I said, these rapid response prayers. Right. So there are moments then in the world's history that you feel require prayer that need to be responded to in a liturgical way. I, I think that has been always the Jewish way that in these moments of moments of challenge in the world that we respond through prayer. It's the way that Jews respond to the world. So this, uh, you know, it's it, in some ways, you know, I could describe the process and I have no idea what's going on. I mean, <laughs> I, I, have said many times, and I get looks of disbelief. I'm not a poet. I it, it it was never a writing skill of mine. I'm an essayist. I started out as a as a daily journalist, storytelling, uh, exposing thoughts and ideas. That's what I'm good at. This liturgical ability showed up as a gift, and I I, I absolutely believe that that. When God is done with me, this ability will vanish as quickly as it arrived, and that will be that. I hope may that time be far off, 
because I get a great deal of satisfaction and love and support and and a feeling of mission from it. And underneath that, I really started doing this to save my own life. You know, after after my after my wife passed away 13 years ago, I, I was writing you know, a much different tenor of prayer. It was less allegorical, less uh, you know, not really a kavanah, but very strictly prayer prayers of 13 or 16 something like that prayers about the cancer journey and and prayers about the alzheimer's parkinson's journey and prayers for the the pregnancy journey and very practical tactical if you will tefillah and that was all about reconnecting with god and, and saving myself that has evolved over time and I'm I'm finally allowing people to call me a poet. Uh, I, I used to say, no, 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 I'm not a poet. I'm just a liturgist. It's it's fine. It's fine. And the 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 book I'm working on now with CCR Press is all poetic midrashim. So it's seventy poetic midrashim on individual words of Torah. And in fact, the 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 most recent book of the trilogy that I've done with CCAR it began to hint at uh, the poetic Midrash. It's the shortest piece ever published of mine until the next book where there's even a shorter piece. But this will give you a hint of, of, of what I mean by poetic Midrash. Sure. Yeah. So this is from your new book, which is what's the name of the book? It's called This Precious Life Encountering the Divine with Poetry and Prayer. Great. It's called The Next Garden. The garden must be overgrown by now without human caretakers to tend the fertile beds. What would we do differently now if the gates of Eden opened and we were readmitted to paradise? Hmm. Yes, it's short, but there's a lot in there. Which is why I'm allowing people to call me a poet. Um, (laughs) So what is a poetic midrash then? So it is a commentary on Torah or an opening or an enlarging of an idea from Torah that comes through the creation of, of poetry. Mm-hmm. Midrash, of course, one of the oldest Jewish literary forms. Jews have been interpreting Torah for a very long time. And so you're you're participating in this very ancient form of holy of holy reading and holy writing and doing it in a modern poetic way and and that's uh, a modern our generation uh, evolution or or innovation the artistic midrash whether it's poetry or song or dance or some form of visual art you know, charcoals painting fabric whatever it is uh, that form of that that idea of artistic midrash is has really come to a can be recognized as a, as a critical way to understand and to share about Torah. Now, again, it's been done. If you look at a, like illuminated sidurim and illuminated Haggadot over the years, you know you could consider some of that poetic mid, or, or artistic midrash. But this is, for the most part, an innovation of our time. Right. I think it's different to depict something from the Torah than it is to interpret something from the Torah and to interpret it through poetry or through 
um, visual arts. It's maybe it's the difference between a medieval illuminated manuscript, as you mentioned, and a Marc Chagall painting that attempts to interpret something that's in the Torah, but to give, um, but to relate it to the world that we're living in today. Yeah, that's a lovely definition, a lovely distinction. So you've written, if I'm correct, five books of creative liturgy and more than 750 liturgical pieces. I know they're on your website, which is tobendlight.com, which I'll put in the notes for the, the episode. And I know they're also in various prayer books and compilations. There's at least one of them that's in the Reform Movement's High Holy Day prayer book. Briefly, tell us about the, the work that you've published, about the few books that you've put out. I know you mentioned them before and about about what's coming. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Uh, I'm going to have to update that bio. Um, I was, uh, you know, over 900 at this point, which is it's maybe it's just hubris to count at this point. But there, there are so many that I, I have them laid out on a on a um, Excel spreadsheet. So I know where they've been published and where they're going. Um, the um, first two books, Jewish Prayers of Hope and Healing and Haggadah Companion were self-published. And the idea was to simply get the material out there. I, I write in small um, moleskin notebooks. And there was a, a day when I thought, you know, having these prayers in moleskin notebooks doesn't help anybody. So I started putting that out online and people asked, well, wow, this is great. Can, 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 do you have a book? And I said, sure, I have a book. And then I self-published. Um, but the idea was to hopefully get discovered. And, and thankfully the movement um, discovered my work and CCAR has used my work in, in the rabbi's manuals and in other books and so on. And then we published this, this trilogy, this grateful heart is about sacredness in time. So we've got prayers about days, seasons, Shabbat, holidays, secular days, and so on. This joyous soul is about sacred word. It is actually uh, tied to the table of contents of Mishkan Tefillah. So the table of contents in this joyous soul is connected to the table of contents in Mishkan Tefillah. And if anyone wants a new readings uh, for service, that you can find that in, in this joyous soul. This precious life is about divine encounter. And uh, the first 50 are, are Torah inspired, Tanakh inspired, and the second 50 are inspired by my experiences or other experiences of divine encounter. So the, the trilogy holds uh, you know, sacred time, sacred word, sacred encounter. The next book is a shift, and it it is purely Torah interpretation with poetry hmm. based on individual words of Torah. What do you mean by individual words? So the the book is is going to be set up with on the left hand side of the spread a discussion of one word of Torah, Tchelet. Uh, Breshit, and so on. And then on the other side of the spread will be a poem based on that one word. Hmm. So we're looking at exploring Torah through the etymologies of words, through the histories of words, through, through other interpretation of those words, and then a poem about that, that 
particular word. Which, of course, also is a very ancient Jewish idea that there are layers of meaning embedded in every word of Torah. So you're bringing those out poetically. Right, which, which sort of explains why I focused on Mokdah as a foreshadowing of the Nadav and Avihu story, because I'm looking at, at, at Torah in many ways, one word at a time. Right, like the traditional commentators who also are looking at Torah one word at a time to understand why does the Torah use this word instead of that word, or why does it repeat this word, or why does it, as you as you point out, why is that one letter smaller than the other letters? That this is that ancient Jewish idea that um, that everything in Torah is is there on purpose. That there's no there are no coincidences, and that we can find meaning on top of meaning on top of meaning by reading the Torah very closely and by believing that Torah speaks to us in our own day and age. Absolutely, the energy of it is also about empowering others to look at Torah in that way, to look at Torah a little differently. Um, but it's not just the, the shot, the, the simple meaning, it's, it's digging past the, the simple meaning, which of course informs where the, where the story goes, but looking, looking beyond that as well. Um, I'll, I'll give you, if I can give you an example, the word Baruch, the root in rabbinic lore, we talk about the root as being berach or ni, and the idea that that prayer has to do with or blessing has to do with bending one's knees or being humble before God is a beautiful notion, not supported by the etymology of the word. Hmm. That is a folk etymology, uh, which has become uh, ingrained in our our um, consciousness. If one follows the scholarship, and you believe in certain scholars, a, well, well, that'll that's a whole other issue. Which which scholar of linguistics one lays one's uh, uh, fate with? But there's another meaning of the same root, which means to strengthen. Hmm. So to strengthen. To pray, oh, prayer is a strengthening activity. So what I'm what I'm trying to do in part in this book is talk both about the rabbinic project, which is making meaning and connecting us to the words. And the, the root me really does that beautifully in a spiritual way. It it illuminates. The, the rabbinic project isn't necessarily the same as the scholarly project, which is to understand the history of the word and where it came from and what, what that might tell us about the meaning, which gives us another layer to strengthen. So I try to talk about those kinds of ideas in getting to my poetic midrash. And, you know, another thing that's beautiful about the way we approach learning is we can hold both the rabbinic project and the the scholarly project as true without one having to negate the other. Right. Agreed entirely. And in fact, I think in many ways as liberal Jews, we have to. We have to read Torah through both of those eyes in order to have it mean the things that it needs to mean for us in, in the modern world. Yeah. So I appreciate that example. And I can see how you could write poems and poems and poems regarding simply one word in, in Torah. 
Well, Alden Salavi, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. Tell us one more time, what's the name of the book and when is it coming out? The book is um, called These Words, Poetic Midrash on the Language of Torah. And God willing, it'll be out by Hanukkah, you know, shipping short problems and paper shortages notwithstanding. Hopefully that's when we'll we'll have it. And it's being published by CCAR Press, and uh, we'll, we'll hope that everything will run on time. Um, I, I wonder if you'll if you'll share one more piece with us to end with. Um, we had talked about the possibility of a piece on on Ukraine. Yeah, that would be lovely. Uh, this is my latest piece on Ukraine. It's called "For Three Leaders for the World." God of compassion, put an end. To- to the war in the Ukraine and all wars throughout the world. Look with favor on the refugees, the homeless, the wounded, the suffering, the starving, and the newly bereaved. Grant a perfect rest under your canopy of peace to those who have perished at the ugly hand of war. Extend your canopy of peace from the highest heavens to this earth. Bless Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky with continued strength and resolve to defend his people against the onslaught inspiring world sympathy and support. Bless U.S. President Joe Biden with wisdom and skill to face the challenge of history as Europe prepares for broader conflict and fears world war. Bless Russian President Vladimir Putin with a change of mind, a change of heart and soul to release the tools of war, to pick up the tools of peace. God of peace, release the citizens of Ukraine from occupation and war, grant them resilience and vitality, Give them comfort and hope. End this violence and suffering for life renewed, for healing and building, for a better world. Let justice come in, waves like water and righteousness flow like a river so that nation shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen. I appreciate the way that you've harnessed traditional Jewish images to relate to a, a very hard situation going on in our world today. And, and as they say, from your mouth to God's ears. Amen. Thank you. And thanks again for spending some time with me today. And um, I appreciate being able to have this conversation. My pleasure. Me too. Thanks. Thanks again to Alden Salavi for joining me to talk about Shemini and about prayer and liturgy in ancient times and today. I'll be back next week as we continue our journey through the Torah together. And I'm booking guests for the coming months. So if you have an idea of someone whose perspective you'd like to hear, shoot me an email at rabbistreifer at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. See you next week.